Welcome to Behind the Spotlight, a different kind of podcast where we have real, deep conversations with entrepreneurs and celebrity visionaries who are making their potential possible. They are certainly ahead of their time and worthy of yours. So listen as I take your favorite entrepreneurs off a pedestal and onto a bar stool right next to you. In life, it all comes down to building powerful, long-lasting relationships in a thoughtful, authentic way. You know, we all see that highlight reel of successful entrepreneurs, but I want to take you behind the spotlight and show you who they were before they figured it all out. Let's explore the sometimes torturous, but always interesting paths their lives have taken. So I'm Beth, speaker, author, entrepreneur, and a magnetic business mentor. I help entrepreneurs to strategically prepare their business and gain exposure through collaboration and media so they can make their mark on the world. I'm a huge believer in the power of potential to catapult your life forward. So join me as we explore stories of some of our favorite people leveraging their past to make their potential possible on Behind the Spotlight. On this episode, Cara Richardson-Whiteley is my guest. Now, she is someone who takes true joy in living life. At 300 pounds, she climbed Kilimanjaro. Yes, Kilimanjaro. Listen how we learn about her story, what binge eating really means, and how to truly love yourself. Cara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I am a huge fan of yours. I think you know that we've uh, gotten to know each other a little bit over the last year. So welcome. Well, uh, thank you for having me. This is such a pleasure to talk to you. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, so you're so sweet. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I know. I miss you. I definitely miss seeing you at the Coco every day. So Car and I met, I guess, about was a year ago, two years ago. I don't even know how long it was now. Maybe a year and a half ago through Jay Jacobs. Um, That's right. One of, one of our favorite people as well. And I was always so struck, honestly, by your calm demeanor, but that like, <laughs> strong that strength that came that comes out in in the words you use <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been told that before because I feel like such a Jersey girl where I'm just a little bit loud and I use my hands a lot and I just feel calm when I'm with you oh that's very sweet of you to say I guess you haven't been around my house during quarantine um because I definitely use my mama voice there I think I think that there is power and strength in in the written word that's for sure um, but I think that is what helps calm me is to kind of put my feelings on the page. And then that helps me face the world with a little bit more balanced view. Um, but I assure you, I, I do use my mom voice from time to time. <laughs> and you should, because I having a couple little kids is not easy. Have you always been a writer? Um, you know, I, I have been a writer as long as I've known. In fact, um, when I was Marie Kondoing my office, I came upon this <laughs> index card that I've kept all these years, and it was from college. And it was uh, from an English class where the professor was gushing about this um, research paper that I did, and he said, you should consider being a journalist. And, and of course, the, the grade was on there, and it was an A. So I guess that I followed that little nudge from the universe and I was a journalist for a decade and decade in central Jersey I was in southern California in central Michigan and you know back to New Jersey again and so I really got my start writing other people's stories and you know there's um there's a real skill in having to write on deadline but as it turned out for my career, I ended up writing a lot of other people's traumas because I spent my first few years as a police reporter. And that meant you responded to every fire, every car crash, every possible thing that could go wrong. Um, and so not only did that bolster my anxiety <laughs> tremendously, because I know all the ways to die. I think my kids had a my kids had an ab of like 10,000 ways to die or something like that. Oh, my God. And so, um, but it also, um, it, it gave me not a chance to, but it really was a way where I ended up kind of absorbing a lot of people's trauma and grief at the time, which was, you know, good and bad. So, um, you know, I was able to kind of have empathy for other people's stories, but what I didn't, um, what I didn't get a chance to do was kind of process that in a healthy way, because I think especially during those times, especially in Southern California, you know, where I was writing a lot about high-speed car chases and 
giant um, forest, you know, brush fires, um, you know, I would turn to binging instead of like actually having a healthy coping mechanism. I can imagine because all, you know, all of that negative energy, you were, you were really, like you said, you were really absorbing it. But I'm curious, like, how did you even get into doing that? Because it's it's such a juxtaposition of like your soul, which is like so sweet and compassionate and loving to then see that every day. Yeah, I mean, I think I just kind of got a reputation in the newsroom of being able to tell other people's stories well in their worst moment. And so when someone um, had lost a loved one, I would, you know, go in with the, the best heart that I could. And that meant that I wasn't getting the details just to get the details. I was, you know, if I wanted to tell the story of somebody who died in a crash or a murder, I didn't want people to remember them for their their death, but I wanted to remember them for their life. And so I approached it that way. And so I think that no matter what your job or your role is in this world, you can bring the same heart, even if the details are are harsh. So it, man- it sounds like it manifested for you in the binging, or was that something that had been going on as a young adult as well? Yeah, I mean, I um, had turned to food as far as I can remember, but the earliest memory of binging for me was when I was nine years old and my parents were on the verge of divorce and I would literally hide in the pantry. And so the sounds of chewing would just drown out their screaming at each other and and the things that no nine-year-old should hear um, or think about. Because I I remember the, the feeling that I... I remember at that time was that the bottom could fall out of my life at any moment. Right. And that's, it's not the way. Yeah. I mean, especially if I look at my own kids, you know, my oldest daughter is 12 and I've kind of like relived, not relived, but seen the world through her eyes Mm -hmm. and to have such a small being in my house. It's like, gosh, you're so fragile as a kid. Um, And I, you know, the thing about binging is that it turned a really dark corner. I mean, so it became kind of the way that I coped even as a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, but it really turned a dark corner when I was 12 and I was sexually assaulted. And the only thing that I could think about when that was happening, as weird as it sounds, is to offer the guy something to eat just to get out of the situation. And it worked. And so I think in my mind, it was solidified that food saved me. I mean, that's the way that I interpreted the world is that food saved me and that there was um that was the only way to kind of to cope and to feel better and so the challenging thing about any vice whether it's food drugs alcohol gambling shopping etc um is that it takes up the highs and the lows and everywhere in between so there's no um you know the thing that i did not learn as a child is how to manage stress And so these days, my role has kind of emerged as an advocate for those people who um, binge, right, as a binge eating disorder recovery advocate, or also, you know, just teaching people about strategies and and coping mechanisms is that I had to relearn as an adult how to deal with stress, how to manage the difficulties of life without always turning to food. And, you know, back then when you were, when we were little, we're not going to say the year because we're over (laughs) 30, um, but it, the idea of kids having stress wasn't prevalent, that that kids didn't have stress. Right. It wasn't a piece. And even if you had something horrible, like you did, like you were assaulted or, you know, even your parents divorced, that wasn't paid attention to. Now you would be in therapy four days a week. You'd have, you know, everybody at your disposal to really help you. But um, was there any other way that you coped with what was going on besides food? You know, I think, you know, at the time there really wasn't a lot. And so I think it manifested itself. I really developed a lot of anxiety and depression as a child. And then that's kind of dovetailed into binge eating disorder, which, you know, just to kind of reinforce what you just said, back then there wasn't even a name for it. Because back then it was all about like, well, she's putting on weight, let's put her on a diet. And what we've learned in research is that sometimes that restriction can be even more triggering for someone who oh, yeah. <laughs> so oh, has, has a bona fide eating disorder. And so um, what I try to help people understand is that, you know, this is way more complicated that, than um, eat less, move more. It's, um, and, you know, binge eating disorder is the most common and least talked about eating disorder out there 
I didn't realize that because I see it more of it's yes, it's a disorder, but it's a mental health issue as well as a physical issue. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's not like, you know, if you see somebody, um, well, if, if you know someone with binge eating disorder, it's just far more complicated than this. Just, you know, oh, she's just like sweets. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not what it is. It's not what it is. I mean, yeah. I, don't get me wrong. I, I do, I do love sweets, but it's not, that's not what, that's not what the issue is. That's no, what, not you know, that's not the issue is. So I've been on a diet since I was 10, probably, mm-hmm. you know, I was, one of the reasons is, and my kids make fun of me about this, like I'm the same height that I was at 10 that I am right now. So I grew early. <laughs> so I was always bigger than everybody else. Um, but I like, just like you did, I stress was food was stress for like stress relief for me. And I have to tell you that as an adult, I have the opposite problem. I can't eat when I'm really stressed. As but growing mm. up, it was the other way around. You know, now it's like if I'm too stressed, right. I can't even put anything in my body, which is e- which is worse on the other side. You know, both of them are bad. So I can right. I can relate to the right. restrictive part and one and having weight issues for most of my life because that was always you know, you're, you're good. If you're being good, you're on the diet, you know, you're good. And if you're bad, you're off the diet and you're bad. So I really worked hard with, I know you have girls, I have boys in my house. It's a totally different animal when it comes to the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the other part of it is not just having to, you know, deal with the stress of life, but also just rebuilding a healthy relationship with food. You know, there's, you know, that idea of good and bad and oh, whatever it's, it's, it's not helpful. And so, you know, even things that, you know, there's certain foods that for a while I felt like I can't have that in my house. I can't manage it. You know, if it's there, it's going to be gone. And, um, you know, I've had to, I've had to reconsider my relationship with Nutella, not that I can't have it in the house because I've had, I've had French au pairs for four years now. And so Nutella is a staple in my house. So I have to learn to have it in my house and not empty the jar you know what I mean it's there's it's just about learning to manage um you know the things that you think are triggers and how to manage them so I grew up also with the French several French au pairs as well and they would Hmm. a cocova I don't remember Nutella um but I've always had um on top of you know overeating and not having a healthy relationship with food until I was much older I've always had stomach issues and food intolerances mm. and IBS and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't know what, my, you know, we didn't know what it was until I was in my late teens because, again, there was no research. Nobody knew what it was. It was like, oh, she's got stomach aches. So, mm. you know, then, then eating, not eating, going back and forth has definitely been a, a theme in my whole life. And, and I'm, with conjunction with that, and I know with you, my happiness as a kid really was connected to how, how I was eating and how my relationship with food was working at that time in my life. Yeah. You know, I wonder, I, I kind of ha- have to wonder if I have enlisted French au pairs in my house because they generally have a really great relationship with food. If I'm still learning, right. And they can teach and not teach by like saying, this is what you do, but just watching their example. And um, I've just, found that in general the relationship with food and the the women that have the young women who kind of have come into our house to help out with childcare and and to really kind of immerse themselves as part of our family has been one of the beautiful things because you know I I have to say that in all all that I've done from you know uh, climbing Kilimanjaro to writing books and being an executive producer of my own movie I've learned that there are other people out there who can help, right? And so, um, first of all, you know, having the an au pair in our house has solved the childcare (laughs) crisis that was going on. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But also, you know, there are people out there, you know, who can help do things that you can't. And I am the first to admit on the parenting front, I've got lots of things that I could use a little help with. And and maybe that's subliminally why I've, I've hired them. I don't know. I'm, they're amazing young women. They're just so motivated and they're, they're great role models for my kids, you know, the people that we've hired. Yeah. But I think, I think subliminally, I, that's why I've kind of stuck with French. But also I speak a little French and I love <laughs> cheese and wine. So that could also have a role. 
I think the French have that like zest for love of life. Mm-hmm. You know, that that maybe we weren't instilled with as much or we weren't instilled with as much because during the 80s, it wasn't about loving life. And that's when, you know, that's when we were growing up. It was more about what was it, the me generation and making money and being the best. It wasn't about um, filling your soul with happiness. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, it works for our family. And but I, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you are struggling with or need assistance with. There's always someone out there who can be an external force in your life, in your children's lives, even if you can't, you feel like you can't be all the pieces that you need to be. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, I, I live within a mile of most of my family, <laughs> my in-laws, and asking for help was hard for me for child rearing and therapy and how much that helps. And then learning how to be a coach and helping other people was always so helpful for me. I think that's really why I first started doing it was because I needed to fulfill that need to wanting to help, but also receiving so much from my clients. Um, but it sounds mm-hmm. like you were back in doing you know, you were a journalist and you were doing other people's stories. There, there wasn't any receiving. It was all giving and, you know, probably burned you out a little bit or a lot. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. I mean, I, when I look back at my journalism career, I mean, uh, you know, thank goodness there are journalists out there who are willing to tell stories and tell the truth um, about things that maybe people don't want to hear about <laughs> or, um, or meet people in a moment that is their most devastating. I mean, gosh, think about all that we've gone through this past year. And the reason we know about it is because there are journalists willing to tell us what's going on. Right. Um, so thank goodness for that. But you're right. I mean, for me, I didn't have a healthy outlet. So as far as a career choice, yes, it helped improve my writing, but it also, um, you know, I didn't have that kind of relief or ways to manage that stress along the way. So maybe not the best career choice for me moving forward. Well, you moved through that. So, so you came, thankfully you came back to New Jersey and what was your next step then? Well, I was a, I was a journalist for a while in New Jersey, but um, you know, I think there came a point when there was a, not a buyout, but you know, an option to be laid off. I took it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I did not reapply for my job because I felt like it was time to start telling my own story. Um, I was, um, I was about to climb Kilimanjaro at that point for a third time. And I felt like that story needed to be told. Um, The first time I climbed Kilimanjaro was after this uh, 120 pound weight loss. And so I was very much feeling like on top of the world. Um, I wrote a book called Fat Woman on the Mountain, which was self-published and it was kind of done with this idea of if I can do it, you can do it mentality. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, And then, um, a year later, after this amazing achievement, I had a baby and I had put more than half the weight that I had lost on in like a nine month period. Like most women, you know, they they gain it back. Um, And, and it also went, I mean, I think what was hard about that time is that it almost went unchecked, right? It was kind of looked at like, well, you know, you're, you're plus sized. And so you're gaining more weight than normal when instead it was just kind of dismissed. There was only one doctor who kind of flagged it and, but he did it in like the most insensitive, ridiculous way. It's something like, Oh, we want the baby to be lean when she comes out. Like what? Oh my God. Now that'd be called a microaggression or even just aggression. But can you take us back to that before the weight loss? Like what was going on for you that motivated you? Cause you were in your twenties at that point. Yeah, I was about to turn 30 and I felt like, you know, just to backtrack a little bit. I mean, this was a point in my life where I could barely climb a flight of stairs right before I climbed Kilimanjaro. You know, probably a lot of people would focus on the idea that I was fat, you know, I was more than 360 pounds. I could barely climb a staircase. And so but that wasn't the only thing that was going on that troubled me at the time. The fact is, is that I was definitely shrouded in depression, real serious, heavy depression, where I spent a lot of time in my room. Um, I uh, bowed out of lots of social gatherings. Um, I just didn't feel worthy. I mean, and also I think about my wardrobe back then when my weight was, I knew it was more than 360 pounds because we had a scale that went up to 350 and the needle went above that point. And my clothes were so um, worn out, like there was huge holes in the thighs. And I thought, well, nobody can see them because my thighs are so big. 
Um, and I thought to myself, well, I'll just, I'll get myself new clothes when I lose weight. And it was kind of the way that I looked at the world for everything, you right. know. I'll uh, go to the doctors when I lose weight. It didn't matter if something was bothering me. I had a rash. I had anything. I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to the doctors until I lose weight. And I can't tell you. I mean, I speak around the country and how many times I hear that from women. Oh, yeah. Um, that I see could, that all the time, too. Yeah. I oh, mean, my God. I'll, I'll, I'll get that when I lose weight. Or yeah. I'll, you know, I did that last week. Honestly, last weekend I had photos taken. Mm -hmm. I kept pushing them, pushing them, pushing them. I was like, let me lose a little bit more. Let me lose a little bit more. Did I? No. And I had them taken and it was great and it was fabulous. But for months, I, and I really pushed her off almost a year. Yeah. I, wanted to make sure, I wanted to get down to that weight. That's not even a realistic weight. Right, right. And then you found the beauty when you just did it in the moment that you're in. That's the action, so honestly, is really what it was. I'm like, I'm just going to freaking do it, whatever. Let's just get this over with. Yeah, I mean, so during that time, I got this adventure travel catalog in the mail. And um, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. It's like it's glossy pictures of Machu Picchu and Kilimanjaro in the Alps. You, you know, you get these amazing, amazing, um, you know. Uh, Is that by chance blogs. or that's something you signed up for? Like, how I did don't you get remember. It? I don't remember. Um, but what I a just clandestine really, event. Yeah, I mean, I remember getting it and thinking to myself, well, I'll do that when I lose weight. And then I realized, like, I always say that to myself. I'm always telling myself when I lose weight. And so I decided that, okay, well, if I want to be a hiker girl, like I'm about to turn 30, I'm not getting any younger because at the time I thought I was getting old, you know. So, so old at so 29. Old. But how were you physically? Well, you didn't know because you wouldn't go to the doctor. I wouldn't go to the doctor and I wasn't um, climbing, this, you know, I was avoiding all activity in general. And so I thought to myself, well, if I want to be, um, you know, a hiker girl, well, then maybe I should start hiking. And maybe it's not um, the Tour de Mont Blanc, you know, right now. But I live in New Jersey, so I can get myself, uh, I got myself the 50 uh, Hikes of New Jersey book and I got myself a water bottle a Nalgen bottle actually very similar to this one here um, because when I went to the um, when I went to the outdoor store I mean nothing fit me I mean even the socks were too tight but wow. those were two things that could help me feel like I was who I wanted to be like so I could pretend to be a hiker girl even if I felt like I wasn't worthy and those first hikes I mean I just you know, I live in Summit, New Jersey, and there's this place called Watchung Reservation that's really close to me. And I remember I started out with, I think it was the Orange Trail, or maybe it was the Green Trail, whatever's the sh absolute shortest trail. I mean, I think it's like 20 minutes, it's the kind of thing that like a preschool could do, right? And I was suited up like I was going up Everest. I had like... <laughs> it was your first one, right? Yeah, I know. I had like a backpack full of like, what was it, like a like a three-day food supply, like a safety whistle, a bear bell. You didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, like, and, and if you think about the area that I live in, right. and even there though no it's, like there, I mean, if there were bears, there'd be like feasting on someone else's garbage can. And if I got lost, I'd like end up in like a Target parking lot. I mean, <laughs> that's, <still> true. <laughs> that's very true. But was that, so that change for you to be like, mm -hmm. I'm going to go hike and I want to be hiker girl, that I don't know if it was a, con a conscious like visualization of I want to be like that. Um, mm. But it's, you know, from knowing you, your determination to be something, to be someone has always <laughs> been in you. And I don't think maybe that's not in everybody. A lot of women who, you know, were at that place when you were, are still at that place and you're not. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was just, that was a moment that I always come back to. That is that is a turning point in my life where I just said that's this is enough. This I'm sick of living in a place where I am not enough to do the things that I want to do, right? And so that's where that's where I come back to. And believe you, believe me, my mind can suck me back into depression and anxiety in a in a heartbeat, in an instant. And this year has tested me in ways that I can't even begin to articulate. Because the depression and anxiety are always there. The binge eating disorder is always there. What's different is that I've learned from that first experience of taking my first steps into the woods that I can overcome the things that I tell myself. I can overcome the ideas this, this world has about what a 300 plus woman should or shouldn't be doing in the woods. 
And what I've also learned and what's most important is that the act of hiking is the exact opposite of binging for me. It is the, you know, binging was all about pushing away. It was all about not being in the moment that I was in because I couldn't handle it, right? Um, But being in the woods is about stepping forward, not knowing what the trail had in front of you, you know, getting uncomfortable, being a little scared, being nervous. But at the same time, it's about being absolutely uh, enclosed in this gorgeous, wonderful experience where where you can hear and and feel everything. I mean, you can hear the wind in the trees above you. You can feel your feet getting kind of sucked in by the mud and you can feel and experience your strength as you take the next step. And so it really became this powerful thing that I always come back to, no matter how far down, you know, my mind takes me to other places. Right. Well, that's, you know, finding your happy place or finding that place that gives you peace and gives you solace is amazing. And I assume that was the trail then to Kilimanjaro because the fact that you did it once, twice, three times, like it, it amazes me because I don't like to always leave my house. (laughs) <laughs> nor do I sometimes <laughs> especially um, now you know mm-hmm. I, I was a germaphobe a minor germaphobe before COVID so you can imagine how crazy I am now but mm-hmm. take, maybe take us through that journey of so now you're hiking right mm-hmm. you're losing I'm assuming you're losing weight at that point and you've had this powerful shift in your mind that I can do whatever I want all those haters and all the people that don't think that women of my size can do anything, I'm going to show them differently? Or was it more of, I need to do this to prove to myself that I'm different? Well, I think that there was a little bit of that, um, of all, all of the above of what you said. But also, I mean, I think what's interesting is one step leads to the next. So, you know, once I did that orange or green trail, whatever it was at Watch on the Reservation, now I'm like checking off boxes of my book, you know, well, now I got to do the moderate trails and now I have to do the advanced trails. And so you start to become stronger. And now, now because you're feeling so good, the endorphins are kicking in, the serotonin is pumping in your mind that, you know, you start to look for more trails. And, and because the serotonin is pumping in my mind and it kind of scathing, pushing away the depression, now I'm feeling better. And so now I'm treating myself better. So now the fuel that I'm putting in my body is, is, is more, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's just treating me better. Right. And so the thing that started happening after that first round is that I started to lose weight. I mean, a tremendous amount of weight, the kind of weight that everybody had to say something about it. And it was, um, you know, it was weird because here I was somebody who put weight on as a way of coping. And, and a psychologist might say that, you know, it was a way of covering up my body, especially as being a victim of sexual assault, right? It's pretty, uh, it's a pretty, pretty typical MO, let's put it that way for someone who had a trauma um, like that. And so um, it was really uncomfortable that now everybody had to say something about my weight. People had to just constantly make mention about it and and to and to make it a huge deal i mean if you do the math i mean i was over 360 pounds that first kilimanjaro climb i lost 120 so that still puts me solidly in a obese category and yet i had this one coworker who had to call me skinny every time she saw me hey skinny hey skinny you know and in some ways like, uh, <laughs> i appreciate the sentiment but maybe uh, use more yeah. you know generous words Right. And then everybody, everybody would ask me, you know, what are you doing? And how long has it taken you? And like, people would follow me into the bathroom, which is, first of all, weird. And like, and ask all these questions about my weight when before they wouldn't even like acknowledge me, look me in the eye, you know? Um, and so I decided to take on Kilimanjaro that first time, uh, not just because it was like the next step, because I'd done all the way down to the Grand Canyon and thankfully back up again without the assistance of a mule. Um, that it was time for something really, really big. And that Kilimanjaro is the highest mountain that you can hike to the top of, meaning it's not um, an into thin air Everest experience. There's no ice axes and ropes and supplemental oxygen, assuming you go down the right side of the mountain. <laughs> and, but also because it was a mountain that you could do it to raise money for charity. Oh, I didn't know that part. Yeah. And in fact, most um, organizations have latched on to it as um 
you know, a fundraiser for their cause. And so I felt like, you know, I needed to change how people looked at me and change the conversation. And so every time someone asked me about what I was doing and how long has it taken me, I could say, well, I'm, I'm climbing Kilimanjaro to raise money for AIDS orphans in Africa. And here's how you can donate. And here's the company match for. And so to give you an idea how many questions people were asking, I raised more than $12,000 with that first hike alone. That part's amazing, but having to redirect people to save you from having to have those conversations over and over again and making you feel even more, I'm assuming, uncomfortable because, you know, I've, I've gone up and down in my weight. And when people start noticing it, it always made me uncomfortable. I've always been here. Why are you seeing me differently now? Like that always made me really uncomfortable. But having a place to direct them and being a good cause is even better. Right. I mean, it's so strange that there's, I mean, even think about now, like how much this this conversation dominates our headspace, right? I mean, right now we're in a global pandemic, a global pandemic, and yet people can't stop talking about the COVID-19, <laughs> right? I mean, as if like that matters, like you're alive. Right. Be grateful you have a house and you have everything you need. That's what I keep saying. Yeah, yeah, you. for real. I mean, it's just crazy. And anyway, so, I mean, the thing that, that happened with me after that huge weight loss is that, I felt like this mountain mama and the next big adventure that I had in mind was having a baby. And during that pregnancy, I put more than half the weight back and it was mortifying for me because I had gotten so much attention about my weight. And now suddenly you could feel, you could literally feel people whispering about you. I don't think it was just being self-conscious. Oh. I mean, just people were talking, you know? Yeah, of course. They, yeah. Because people do. I totally because people do. It just people dominates do. the conversation. And so, oh. You know, I was so desperate to get back in that place that I, you know, thought, well, what if I climb Kilimanjaro again? And that second climb was, you know, just almost a cautionary tale <laughs> and what not to do when it came to um, to hiking because I didn't train. I thought, you know, I was successful in that first hike because it was a long slog to the top and I'm really good at hiking slow, so it's going to be great. But what I had forgotten and about that second climb and about that first climb was that um, what I had gotten really good at while training for the first climb was about fueling myself with things that make me feel good. And when I put on all that weight back, I was secret eating. I was binging like I've never binged before when I was pregnant. And I hadn't kind of revisited why did I binge and how do I move forward? You know, right. Um, and still in that space where you weren't getting help and you weren't asking for help. Yeah, I was definitely in that place where I barely had enough childcare. I didn't feel like I deserved it. Um, I was wearing the same clothes for like the weeks on end, stained with milk. You know what I mean? Well, I, was, I did that too, so don't feel bad yeah. about that part. <laughs> but you know, it was it was really like a self care crisis. If I if I'm being honest with myself, that time in my life was not the greatest when it came time to take time to train for climbing Kilimanjaro, first of all. I mean, that wasn't even on the table. So I just kind of went cold to Africa, thinking that just like being in the same place was going to put me back on track, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, long story short, it was an epic fail. It was the worst climb that I've had. I mean, the night before I binged, um, it, that was the hardest thing that I had to write about in Gorge. Um, it was one of the last scenes I wrote because I was not very willing to open up and, and admit the fact that I was here. I was in Africa and about to climb the, the world's highest freestanding mountain. And, and I binged and um, I had to give up, you know, I was on summit night. So I made it a uh, five and a half days of hiking, uh, but I had to turn back on that final stretch to the summit because my brain wasn't or my body wasn't reacting to what my brain was telling it to do. And it was time for me to go home. And I thought for sure after that experience that I was not going to hike again because I, I came back with such shame and embarrassment, like okay. not only because I binged before that climb, but because I was, I failed. And, and it's so ridiculous to think like, I mean, I hiked probably 40 something miles in that. <laughs> it wasn't like you didn't, you turned around after an hour yeah, that's um, but, right. You know, I'm curious, what does binging mean in your in your point of view? Well, I mean, for me, 
in my case, there's a diagnosis that goes along with it. And that, that means that I'm eating until the point where I'm uncomfortably full is, you know, it, at that time, it was happening really frequently. Um, but more importantly, it wasn't so much about the food consumed as the behavior that followed. And so that meant that I would binge and then I felt extraordinarily guilty or I would hide the fact that I had done so or um, that I felt uncomfortable, like physically sick afterwards. I never purged. Like I've never been um, actually in all my life. I've never, pur- I mean, because that's a lot of people think that they kind of think about binging and purging because that's bulimia, but that was not my, that's not my thing. I think we've all had binging moments um, or, you know, days um, that unfortunately for a lot of women turns into, and men turns into more than that. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, what I'm curious about is like you had all these people around you that couldn't see you and couldn't see what was actually going on. Like, you know, I feel like if there had been somebody been like, hey, Car, you should really train more for this. Or Car, you know, just question you in something. But I think that it sounds like that just didn't happen. Maybe you were shadowing yourself so nobody saw that or you just weren't hearing it. Well, I think there were two things going on with me at, at the time. And one is that, um, you know, people with binge eating disorder are typically people pleasers. And so oh, everything okay. needs to sound fine. Okay. Um, but I think the question is not, are you, should you be training more? It's more like, is everything okay? Well, are you are you doing all right? You know, because if one were to look back, knowing what they know now, you probably could have seen it a little more. You know, you could have seen that I would back out from um, a family picture. I would not go, like, uh, I remember one of the first real opportunities is I did not, I was trying to work from home with a baby, which, you know, now with quarantine, I'm like, gosh, I can work from home all the time. But with a newborn baby, trying to get work done with, like, naps, and, and my daughter was not a napper, she was not really a really regular sleeper, so it was a nightmare, and she was, and she was up a lot in the night, and partially, I mean, I, I'm not blaming her, because partially because I was so irregular right I was so I had my emotions weren't regulated my my confidence wasn't up there so I questioned everything I did so it's a long story short but the story is I mean the thing is here is that like I was not taking very good care of myself and it showed I mean it showed you know not that someone with a newborn baby looks perfect and put together. There's some forgiveness allowed for that. But I was a real, I mean, it was a hot mess in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and I think it's okay for someone to go over to someone's house and be like, Hey, you know what? And just kind of almost like not forcefully, but just be like, let me hold the baby for a while. Why don't well, you go take right. a school? Yeah. You no, know, just I, something like that. Yeah, you know, totally. 100%. That, my, my son didn't sleep for the year. Yeah. I had shingles. Yeah at his first birthday party because he yeah. didn't sleep and I was going to do it all by myself. And even though I had a mother and a mother-in-law and a, like I had all these people around me that would come over and want to hold him, it just didn't, it never made a dent. Yeah. And I didn't know, I didn't even know what self-care was. What was I, same, 30 years old, what's self-care? I had no idea what that meant. Right. Right. Isn't it amazing how the body speaks? I got shingles the summer after I was sexually assaulted. I was 12. You know, you, you should be getting 12 uh, shingles when you're 12, when you're 30. Your body is speaking. Right. And that nobody noticed what was going on or what, you know, or, or said, hey, there's a big problem here if this 12-year-old has shingles. Right. Right. Exactly. Nowadays, it would be, you know, it would definitely yeah. be noticed. Thank God, our, thank God our children have a little bit more than we do. Yeah. So you come home. Kilimanjaro mm-hmm. didn't go well. You're obviously, it's shameful, depression, because you, you did it again. And you wrote a book. Where, where did the, so you have several books, which I am so proud to own. <laughs> and they're amazing I, I really knowing you and reading your writing I don't I just I hear your voice in my head when I read it I don't know, yeah so I, I feel even more connected to it but so where did the books come in like time wise okay so then um so after that point I didn't think I was gonna hike again and so um a year and a half or so passed and I got this email from a friend who said that she was going to climb Kilimanjaro and she was going to bring her friend along and she would um, love it if I came along. She and I had met um, at the Weight of the Nation conference. It was right after I had lost all that weight. And so it was actually I met her with the hopes that she would tell my story. She was a, she was a journalist 
And, um, and she remembered and she was impressed with my story. And she said, well, I'll climb Kilimanjaro and I'll do it for Global Alliance for Africa if you come along or something like that, you know. And so there was all this pressure on me because she, she and her friend were willing to raise a dollar per foot of the mountain, right, for Global Alliance for Africa. So that's $19,343. Wow. And um, it's a kind of a weird kind of um, peer pressure. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. Okay, now exactly. I need to show up for two... Not only for nine to show up for myself, but now these two people, because the this charity is not going to get, you know, the funds they need if I don't really do something about this. Right. And then um, my cousin-in-law, Stacy was similar boat. She was really struggling with, um, you know, the death of her mom and her father within uh, a few years of each other. When her mother died of cancer, her father was murdered. And so, oh. um, you know, the, she basically also offered to come along. If I, if I was going, then she would go and climb Kilimanjaro for Global Alliance for Africa. So that's another $5,000 that was going to be raised if I came along. Right. And I knew if I climbed the mountain for Global Alliance for Africa, I could raise another $5,000. So like $30,000 is on the line. Like it's a very strange kind of peer pressure. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's enough in, in Kenya to build a library, right? So really? Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I knew it was something, but a whole library for those kids, that's amazing. Yeah. And so... Um, the question became how at first I was like, how can I say no? But then I shifted it to like, how can I say yes? Because, you know, I came away from that second climb feeling so beaten and so unworthy of hiking in general. Right. That I needed to remember what it was about hiking that made me want to do it in the first place. And it was because of how it made me feel. And it had nothing to do with pounds on the scale or anything. It was about that idea of being a hundred percent, present and it was about pushing myself in ways that made me feel good and so it wasn't so much about just getting back on the mountain and being in the physically in the same space but being mentally in that space so I needed to kind of decide that I wasn't going to surround myself with trainers who looked at me like a before and after picture right that I needed because the, the biggest lizard was really hot and right? yeah. no offense Jay because no. I love Jay but, you know, everybody wanted to be the next um, Jillian, right? Everybody wanted to be the next right. um, Mark. If I push you hard enough and yell at you enough and, re you know, yeah. work out six times a day. Then, then, then they're going to be the next trainer on the show. Right. That's what, like People looked at my body and they thought of me that way. And so I needed to surround myself with people who were going to love me where I was and go from there, right? And then it didn't matter if I lost a single pound. But I needed the strength to go up the mountain. And so... I want to make sure that, you know, when people talk about body positivity, it's not about necessarily just, oh, just being heavy and doing the things that you want to do and being accepting of that. It's about having the love to just start what you want to do where you are. And so I trained hard. I mean, I didn't just kind of wing it and say, like, oh, I'm going to slog my way to the top. I did boot camps. I did. Um, I walked a half marathon. I even went to Telluride to do altitude training. So I trained hard, but the starting point was just with a grand acceptance of who I was and where I was and just decided to go forward from that point, not because I wasn't enough and I wouldn't be enough when I was a certain number on the scale or I wouldn't be enough until I climbed that mountain. It was like, I'm enough in this moment to take on this challenge and to do the work to get me there. Oh my God, Cara, I'm like crying. Like <laughs> I am because the fact that you could take this horrible outcome and be so mentally strong after everything you had gone through and how hard you had worked to be like, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to do it differently with, with the peer pressure, but I'm going to do it from a place of loving myself instead of loathing myself. I'm going to come from a place of strength and I'm going to enlist other people who want to come from there also and you'll and have a joy in this instead of having... I guess all those negative emotions about it. That's really, I'm just, I'm so, it's just amazing. I, I, Thank it's, you. Well, you know, I think you're amazing, but I think that people listening to this is like, we're our listeners holding ourselves back because we can't get through to that joy part. You know, in business and in life and child rearing and relationships, whatever it is, but um, you had been through so much. So I just want to, I guess, just give you even more love and props that, you know, define that and then do all the work, you know, right. and spend the money to go to Telluride and spend the time, you know, and, how many kids did you have at this point? Uh, just one, thankfully. <laughs> I mean, not thankfully, but you know, it was a little easier to manage because I just had one. But I, I think it's important to acknowledge that that being said, thank you for those kind words, but 
it's not like it's a perfect path. No, I, I'm, perfect. it's not like it's not like a light bulb goes off in your head and you're like, oh, yeah, now I'm a mountain girl and now everything is going to go perfectly in this direction. Because even today, you know, um, you know, every time I've done an adventure, there's like this ginormous gorge. I mean, <laughs> between the two mountain peaks, right? And and it's almost like I'm starting from ground zero every time I go to do something else. So when right. I did Havasu Canyon in Arizona last year, I mean, I had to train and I worked with our friend Jay just to kind of have an accountability partner. Here's what my plan is. What do you think? What should I add in here? And he was really skillful and like just saying like, oh, you know, I see that you're struggling with the mental part of it. Maybe you should add in yoga. And I'm like, duh, of course I should. I, that's one of my favorite things. And it helps me be in touch with my body in ways that other things haven't. But somehow it kind of fell off the radar. Right. Um, and you then. Choice and then kept going. You know, we all have pitfalls, the, up, the pitfalls, the up and down of everything you're doing. And I'm sure you had depressive states and non-depressive states and, you know, whatever you're going through. But just making that mental shift and having that forward motion. Um, really just, it, I think it's impressive, but it just says a lot about your stamina for have, for wanting that kind of the life that you actually want envisioning yourself in the life that you kind of want. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's true. I think people have hard with that. And, and you, and you're such an inspiring story. That's, we will talk in a second about will be a movie, which is so <laughs> exciting, but, uh, but go on. You know, I, I always try to connect my life to my, to the people that I speak about and how I can relate. And I, I really have a hard time relating to that. <laughs> I do. I just, I can't find a place in that. And I feel like sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm going to start walking every day. And three days in, I'm like, uh, I don't want to walk today. Or I'm going to start doing whatever every day. I'm going to do my social media post every single day the way that it should be. And it right. doesn't always happen. No, it doesn't always happen. But the act of believing that you could is, is a powerful thing unto itself. Like the act that you believe that you could be a coach and the fact that you do it is, is marvelous and, and beautiful because Sometimes you have to see yourself at the top of a mountain before you're actually there, you know, and acknowledge that it's not going to be a perfect journey, but you're going to have to just physically just think that it's possible. Yeah. Right. Making your potential possible, which, you know, is my tagline, but I, you know, I fully, exactly. believe, I fully believe in that. Um, but, and then you wrote the books about it so that not only did you live through it, but then you shared it. Yeah. You shared all the dirty parts. Right. And I want to kind of just backtrack just yeah. a little bit because like when you're talking about um, the fact that Gorge is Gorge, my journey up Kilimanjaro at 300 pounds, um, the book is being turned into a movie, but that's not the first attempt, right? right. I mean, I actually had meetings with Oprah's network. Mm -hmm. I met with the Travel Channel. I met with all these people because I had this incredible documentary footage of that third climb because it was such an important journey. And I had this feeling after I got um, <laughs> voluntarily laid off from my <laughs> job as a journalist that I was like, okay, well, I need to show people, you know, uh, somebody with a plus size body hiking this mountain. They need to physically see it to believe it, right? Oh, what a good idea. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I, <laughs> so I hired this wonderful, um, she was a student at NY, I think NYU at the time. And she, Sydney was so daring and she came up the mountain with me and um i also had sharon who is a, a wonderful filmmaker who had climbed kilimanjaro before so they came with us and they got all this footage and i thought for sure this is going to be a documentary with oprah's network they're focusing so much on documentaries because that was their first first big push right and my story is perfect for oprah right and so i remember going out to la and being so excited and this was going to be a zen deal and um it wasn't. They passed because they changed the direction of the network. And I remember one of their executives, Donnie Sinclair, it was so kind to me. He wrote me this direct message on Twitter saying, like, keep going. It will find a home. And I printed out that tweet, and I've always had it on my vision board. Oh, that's awesome. So, but think about how many years ago that was. I mean, gosh, I mean, I climbed Kilimanjaro that last time like 10 years ago. And so it was just after that we started having these conversations with OWN, um, Oprah's network. And then um, and there were times where this was a possibility and there were times when I just completely forgot about it. But the real opportunity, the time that felt more, most magical and right 
was when I was going to Chrissy Metz, um, her, her book signing in New York City. I mean, Chrissy Metz plays Kate on This Is Us. And there's been a real shift in this world in how we look at mental health issues on the big screen and on TV screens and other media, and also how we look at weight. And Chrissy Metz was the first person when she played the role of Kate who looked like someone like me on screen. You know, she wasn't somebody in a larger body who was an absolute punchline. And so I admired what she brought to the role because it felt like me, right? With a real, and so, with real, with real dreams and real strength and real everything instead of, right, the butt of the joke or the, you know, mm-hmm. the funny best friend who's a little bigger. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The secondary role, yep. you know, and, um, and she's such a, she, she's such a, major part in that in that show you know she is an equal part with her two siblings on the show and my it's, favorite part I love yeah, her story right and um anyway it just has been such a gift to me to see that and so when I went to her book signing I was really wanting more than anything just to say say thank you you know thank you for all you do and so um, it was one of those book signings, a celebrity book signings, where you um, had to get a ticket in advance because they expected a big crowd, which there was. And so I had to go, like, get in line at, like, 7 in the morning before the bookstore opened at 9. And then I was in the city all day because you had to buy a copy of the book as part of the deal. So um, all day I'm reading her book. And I did have both Weight of Being and, and Gorge in my bag at the time. And I was trying to figure out which I was going to give to her. And, um, and I, you know, I kind of shuddered with a lot of self-doubt. Oh, she's not going to run and read it. And then lo and behold, like on the back of her book, which is so beautiful and amazing, that her book, This Is Me, um, it says something like, you can do anything in this world. And the next time I see you, I mean, it literally says something like, the next time I see you, I want you to tell me all about it. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like. Tara, listen, the universe is telling you something. <laughs> right, right, right. And so I kind of went back to this idea of what do I really want? I don't want her to give me a blurb for way to being. She's not going to connect with that story. What I really want, what I want to share with her, what I want to share with the universe is I really want Gorge to become a movie. And so I wrote her a note on the inside of the book and saying like how much I appreciate her work. And I said, you had asked what I want from this universe. And I said, I want to make this into a movie. And so I was with a friend, um, Victoria at the time. And here we were like, I was still going back and forth. Should I give it to her? Should I not? And Victoria's like, of course you should. And so I lay the book on the table and it was more of a, Hey, nice to meet you. Or that's an incredible story. And then bye. And so that was in March, two years ago. And I didn't hear anything. And I was just, grateful for a chance to just get her signature on my copy of her book and you know I figured my book kind of just went in the trash can and apparently handed it off to her publicist or something right yes yes yeah file this for me like in the recycling bin right (laughs) because you know you just uh, even I get books on the road and you can't always carry them back you know you just get a lot of things so um as it turns out like so that was March in July. Apparently she was in the middle of a dream and she woke up saying, oh, I need to read Gorge. And that day she read it cover to cover <laughs> highlighted. Like she says, she always tells says that she like highlighted like every line and how it spoke to her. And she immediately met with her team and um, came up with a plan. And they're like, well, you have to ask her first. Let's <laughs> <laughs> And so she and I of course in my note I wrote my email address just hoping that maybe that there would be a chance thinking that there wouldn't but why not right and so a month later she sends me this email saying that she took it took her a month to write the right words and I'm like are you kidding me you could have had me at hello hi Cara call me exactly done you know who you are crazy mads please and it was really like the most beautiful email i've ever received about my book and how much it moved her and she resonated with the story and um you know in reading her book i can see like because there actually are a lot of similarities in our backstories and who we are as people um that I can see why it really, you know, it really touched her and moved her in a way that she wanted to share the story with the world. And so, you know, it's been a beautiful ride, a Hollywood-like, you know, ride ever since. And, you know, we met with different producers and, um, 
you know, the ultimate uh, person that we went with was Amazon Studios. And we're working with an all-female team. Um, and the production company is Patma, led by Denise Novi. And Margaret French is one of the people who's working with us on that. And it's just been a, it's been a dream team of strong, female-focused um, people who really want to tell this story in a way that only they could, right? Right. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how it shifts and changes because every story that is optioned by Hollywood changes for the screen. And I'm willing to accept that the facts of the story might change, right? But the truth and the authenticity will remain. The experience that the, the voice that Chrissy can bring to my story will remain. And most importantly, that whatever they put out there will help change someone because it is not a before and after story. It is not. It is a journey story. And, and so many more people will relate to that and find a home in whatever they want to accomplish. I mean, just, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Kilimanjaro is not for everybody. You know, eight <laughs> days without a shower, it's just not appealing to a lot of people. No. <laughs> and just walking for eight days as well. But first, congratulations. Thank you. On the the deal and the book and everything in Chrissy, but you know, the message that the universe is sending you. She got a message in her dream you know, she had she looked at the book the night before, probably not. It just kind of came to her from the story that you told me. And that's an amazing part of it that, you know, this your message, which includes her now, needs mm -hmm. to really be out there so people understand. Because I understand so much better after meeting you and hearing your story, you know, the plight that people who have this disorder really go through and how it, the effects it takes on their lives and the effect it takes on the people around them. You know, what we didn't talk about is that you do, before COVID, you had been <laughs> traveling around the country speaking mm -hmm. at places like Uber, you know, big corporations, small, you know, smaller organizations um, to really get that message out. And, and from what I understand, your res the response is always that they want to just know more about your message and know more about you. But what, what do you get from doing those talks? What do you, you know, personally? Well, I think that right now so many people will need to hear a message of resilience and that's been such a gift to be able to share that. So for example, I did an event with TIA, TIAA and Nuveen. Um, it was supposed to be an in-person um, event in Chicago in March. And of course it was one of the first events that just was like, nope, not happening. Let's just do this virtually. And so they were expecting a hundred people to log on. 500 people within the company for the Women's um, Empowerment Month signed on because everybody needed to feel that connection and also that we're going to get over this. And I think that one of the strongest messages in, in my talks is, is how we're going to get over this. And another thing that I think is really important that I that I share with corporations is how to connect with people who are in extended sizes. Um, because in 67% of women are about size 12 or above. So, you know, I think that a lot of brands have really missed the mark and how to connect with those companies. And so I've really been doing a lot of strategic work on how to help companies do just that. And I think it's important that the world do a better of relating to people as they are instead of how they aspire to be, right? Maybe, or, or not how they aspire to be because we all need aspirations, but this vision that they're not able to achieve those dreams or not able to do the things that they love simply because they don't look a certain size, that there's more power and more connection with people as they are in that moment. And the results That's will be beautiful. much better. Yeah. Will. It's beautiful because I, I'm guilty of it too. Like not being educated on the disorder not being more educated on, you know, what people actually go through. You know, I, I have looked I'm totally guilty of it. And, I, and I'm sure of other listeners too, you know, I've looked at celebrities who are bigger or artists who are bigger, not celebrities, more like bloggers and influencers who talk about, um, and even I still, I feel bad saying bigger. I think that's like the wrong word too. Is that the wrong word? Oh, no, it works. It's fine. Sure. <laughs> so, I mean, the more. Like not, not understanding the body acceptance piece, piece, which you did touch on. I'd love for you to talk about a little bit more because I I'm not accepting of my body when I don't feel the right size. So it's hard for me to say, okay, so you're, you know, maybe a hundred pounds more than I am and you 
How are you healthy? How is your liver working? How is your heart pumping? Mm -hmm. them? Like I, I, I go right to the medical part of it. And why are you, why is someone so accepting of their body if they're not healthy? But that's my assumption that they're not healthy. Like you right. don't need to be little to be healthy. Well, it's kind of like a preconceived notion, right? And so, and, and I, I, I get it because, you know, people might look at the size of my thighs and hips and say like, oh my God, she's about to have a heart attack. But the truth is, is that I make going to the doctor a very important part of my yearly routine um, to get my numbers checked. And I'm always, you know, perfect, um, perfect uh, blood sugar, cholesterol, blood pressure. I've never had numbers, even when I was I think pregnant. you're healthier than me. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> well, I don't know, but, you know, and, and so, but when there is something that's bothering you, then you kind of have to set off on a path with knowing what you know. And so, for example, right now my knees are bothering me. And that's, you know, it has a lot to do, you know, at least my orthopedic doctor explains to me I'm very knock-kneed. And so the arthritis that I have in my knees is on the exterior part of my knees where there's a tremendous amount of contact. And so right now I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, I know one of the greatest things that I can do to help my knees is to relieve some of the pressure. Like I am going to physical therapy. I am doing gel injections. I'm doing all the medical things that, that are possible. You know, I've done, I've done those things and right. I'm trying right now to prevent surgery. And so, um, so I have to think about, okay, so what changes do I feel comfortable with? Uh, that that will not make me go into a tailspin, right? Uh, and if I need to make some changes in how the foods that I'm putting in my body, what support do I need? Do I need to work with an eating disorder specialist dietitian? Probably, right? Um, this morning I was thinking about, well, what are the foods that I was eating before that first Kilimanjaro climb, not because I'm looking at it as a diet, but I just remembered that I felt really good. My body felt really right. good during that time. Right. And so I, I look at it and appreciate it as I'm like, okay, what does my body need right now? And how can I help it? And how can I help make that happen without going off on the deep end again? <laughs> and I do the same way. People ask me all the time about why, why I eat healthy or why, you know, I put out such nutrition information. And for me, it's always been about feeling well and feeling good in my body, like waking up without a headache, not feeling achy. I have, it was uh, Rosh Hashanah last weekend mm -hmm. and I had a piece of this gluten-free lemon cake, which is from Abel Baker in, in Maplewood. If anyone's near Abel Baker, you have to go because it's the best bakery. <laughs> I didn't think that it had, I thought it was vegan and it was my mistake. I just didn't check and I can't have dairy. So mm -hmm. I felt like crap for the last three days or four days oh. right now going on because I put something in my body that I know doesn't work. Mm -hmm. That's really the point of the point that I come from. But can you talk a little bit more about how the general public or the people that you speak to can really educate ourselves more besides listening to you and going to your website and, and taking your classes and everything so that there isn't that discrimination as much, you know, maybe just educate us a little bit so the, the listeners can maybe think about it differently. So I'd love to yeah. bring that message too. I mean, I think, I think that's a great point. I mean, obviously, I'm doing what I can to help educate and inspire people along the way. And you are. Um, oh, thank you. you thank are. you. Yeah, actually, I'm launching um, a series of classes from uh, getting beyond the no. Um, that's, ah. or, or rise, excuse me, rising above the no is going to be my first one-time class. And then um, I will be doing something on the science and strategies to combat binging that will happen in the new year. Amazing. Um, yeah, so I'm super excited about that. But I think that what's important is to start to kind of um, follow people who really inspire and educate you and, and, and whatever pur purpose or passion that you have. Um, you know, one of my favorite Instagrammers, or she's actually more of a TikTok person, but I'm not really on that <laughs> platform. You're a little old, right? <laughs> Great. My daughter is in it, but not me. Um, but you know, glitter and lasers <laughs> is great. Her name is Anna and she's, she's great. And then I, I surround myself with a squad of people, um, you know, like Myrna Valerio. She's a plus size uh, ultra marathoner. And like one of my dearest new friends is Arwen Turner. And she runs Come Alive Outside, which is a nonprofit to help encourage people to be outside. And so whatever it is that you want to do, um, you know, expand your circle, you know, not only in diversity of colors, but also in diversity of size. Um, I think that really helps to see that people 
of all shapes and sizes are willing and able to do amazing, beautiful things and they can inspire you in ways that you never thought were possible. And so my Instagram feed is, is full of plus size adventurers and plus size models and um, influencers who really are making a difference out there. And it's kind of helped me on those days where I don't feel so worthy. <laughs> um, you know, I follow Torrid on Instagram. And so I'm like, hmm, it's time for a new wardrobe. <laughs> Um, I, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, all colors matter, all sizes matter. And we all um, living in harmony I, is our dream, you know, but I think that I really like that advice. And you're know, starting to follow people that are doing things that we want to do that are diverse of color and size, I think would open everyone's mind up to um, more acceptance and help helping those people that, that need the support. If it's liking a post, or having a conversation with a friend and saying, like you said in the beginning, like, are you okay? It's really important. And, and, and just to listen to the different voices that are out there. I mean, I found, especially in the times of Black Lives Matter, like I found myself like, okay, what's my podcast rotation? Am I listening to diverse voices? Like, who do I need to kind of expand my circle? You know, the more we expand our circles, the more we, we find the possibilities that are available for ourselves and for other people. So it's just a really beautiful way to kind of to get out there and to, to see what's available for us and for other people. I love you so much. I really do. I'm going to, so in the notes will be the links to all of those people. Cara, if you could tell us the one place you want people to go to find you, to sign up for your, your newsletter so they can find out more about your classes. Cause I can't wait to sign up for your master class. I'm so excited. I've never got to see you actually in action. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited now. I'm super excited about it too. So I hope you um, come and visit me at CaraRichardsonWhiteley.com. And now I just want to warn you that Cara Richardson Whiteley is not the easiest thing to spell. It's Cara, K-A-R-A, Richardson Whiteley is W-H-I-T-E-L-Y.com. And so you can find anything there from how to sign up for my newsletter, how to register for classes, how to follow me on Instagram. You will, it's your one-stop shop. To, to find everything about me. And I hope you do because, you know, this is a journey and the more of us that are on it together, the better. Oh, thank you so much. And also it'll be in the notes so anyone that wants to find you can, and not know how to spell, can find it there as well. <laughs> Cara, thank you so much for spending some of your time with me today. I send you love and hopefully one day soon I get to actually give you a hug. I look forward to that day beyond, beyond belief. I'll talk to you soon, Beth. Mwah. <laughs>